computers have advanced past this point, but years ago an author bought an expensive new computer system from a group called Microtech Computer Services. And after he got it home and all set up, the customer repeatedly phoned Microtech, reporting disasters, demanding help. He kept losing all his data. Over the phone, they walked him through all the typical um, things that could go wrong. And when they couldn't find any kind of lasting solution, somebody a technician made a house call. So right next to his kitchen, there was his home office. It was neatly arranged, well-equipped, and the technician did his job. He checked through all the parts of the machine to see if they were okay. He couldn't find anything amiss. And then he asked to see the computer files that the author had kept his working drafts. And the author explained that he didn't use his hard disk for this purpose. I guess he was a little scared of losing all his data at once, but he preferred to keep each chapter, chapter on a separate floppy disk. Some of you remember those. Okay, well, the technician said, can I see the disks? And he said, sure, they're right here in the kitchen. And so they walked over into the kitchen. There they were, neatly arranged and held fast to the family refrigerator with decorative magnets. Now, the magnets had a worthwhile purpose. They kept the disks organized for the author. But the author didn't understand that another purpose of magnets is to erase data on magnetic disks. They demagnetize the disks. So I want to think a little bit about purposes and dual purposes, especially as we go back to this time in Galatia and the early church when the churches were... Con- I don't, I don't know that confused is the right word, but they had differing opinions on the importance of the law. The law of Moses had a purpose for the Jewish people. We know the law as the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. The laws enclosed in these books helped to bind the Jewish community together. And it was an act of faith to believe in these books, and to believe that these laws then would bind them to not only each other, but especially to God. That was the main thing. In Genesis, God made a promise to Abram, Genesis 12, early in the Bible. God made a promise to make of Abram a great nation, and he said to Abram, in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. And Abram became Abraham, and then he fathered Ishmael and Isaac, and then they had children of their own, and all those had children. And so beyond that are these seed, these seeds of Abraham, these children of Abraham. Well, the churches in Galatia and elsewhere are struggling to understand the purpose of the law that had bound them together for centuries. Some are saying that the new Christians can't be true followers of Jesus Christ if they don't adhere to the Jewish laws. Paul is on the other side, and he's telling them that the purpose of the law has been fulfilled. In their days, some children had custodians or um, in the 
versus today it was translated disciplinarians. Elsewhere it's translated tutor. We don't have a, a, an appropriate uh, translation for this word that means basically child leader. And in Greco-Roman households, if I were a, a, not a queen, but you know, a mother in a, a rich enough Greco-Roman household, then I would have these custodians who would take my children to school and walk them home and make sure they stayed out of trouble. So that's where we get the word disciplinarian. So what Paul is saying is the law has been like a disciplinarian, a custodian, someone to carry you through a stage of your life. Now that Christ has come, it's like we've turned 18 or we've turned 21. We've made that step to adulthood so that we don't need that custodian anymore. Christ has come. And because of the faith of Christ, because of our faith in Christ, then we don't need the law anymore. Now this will offend our Jewish brothers and sisters as it did then. And one scholar noted that Paul manages to offend virtually everyone with his insistence on the prior and exclusive claims of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So the argument then was, how much like a Jew does a Gentile or a non-Jew need to be in order to be Christian? It's kind of confusing, huh? But Mark Douglas says this was perhaps the most important moral question that the early church faced. Hard for us to understand, but you know we have issues like sex and money and these other scandals, but this was a scandal for them. So all these other concerns that dominate modern society's moral life were secondary. Do Gentiles need to follow the Jewish law to a T to be true followers of Christ? And then, of course, we never can look at the scripture with saying, without asking, and what does this mean for us? Well, it means a complete change of clothes. Now, I say that sort of tongue-in-cheek, but really that's how Paul describes it in this passage. In the early church, those who sought baptism, they went through at least 40 days of training And then on Easter morning, they separated into male and female places for their their baptisms because right before they went into the baptistry, they disrobed. They took off their old clothes, and they were baptized in the nude. And then when they came out from being baptized, they put on new white clothes as a symbol of their new life in Christ the purity of Christ. And so when Paul is talking about this being baptized into Christ and being clothed with Christ, here's our, our visual, here's our, um, our imagination. This is where it goes is to when someone steps out of the river or the stream where they've been baptized and they're clothed in something new, something white, something pure, they have put on Christ. Richard Hayes reminds us that to be clothed with some quality or attribute is to take on the characteristics of that in which one is clothed. 
So we take, if we're wearing white, we take on purity. I, we, our family's planning our first trip to Disney World in a few weeks, and so the image that came to my mind is um, thinking about walking around in Disney World, and we have this image of all the princesses, Mickey Mouse, and all this, the cast of characters. And so I've understood that when the girls put on their princess costumes, they are in character no matter what. They never, I've heard of times when that hasn't happened too, but um, they're supposed to be in character uh, all the time. Like those clothes make them who they are. Just like our new clothes after being baptized make us a Christian. So our roles aren't simply to be acted, though, as on a stage or as at a Disney park. We're called to be authentic. Authentic. And so then Paul describes one way that we can be. And the way he describes it is that we completely abolish anthropological and social distinctions. There's neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free. There is no longer male and female, for all are one in Christ Jesus. The Greeks or Gentiles are no longer made to follow the ritual Jewish laws because Jesus Christ has come to fulfill the the law and make all people one in him. They had slavery in those days. So in the days of slavery, there was to be no hierarchical distinction made because all are one in Christ Jesus. And even in the patriarchal society of the early church, women are not to be distinguished from men in their servanthood to Jesus Christ, for all are one in Christ Jesus. Distinctions have been made extinct through Christ. Having been baptized into Christ, we are set free from the law, from our disciplinarian, and we are now under Christ alone. Noel D'Amico says, Paul is not naive. He does not claim that somehow after their baptism, people cease to be slave or free, male or female, Jew or Greek. Rather, he asserts that having been baptized in Christ, they are fundamentally freed for a new way of living and being as children of God. They are no longer bound by either their property or their poverty. Their lives are no longer determined by either their high status or their low status. They are freed people. We are freed people. On the radio talk show, speaking of faith, host Krista Tippett asked Desmond Tutu, how it felt to vote for the first time when he was 63 years old. In his reply, he noted how for us in the U.S., voting is a political act, but for him and other black South Africans who had been under apartheid for 300 years, voting was a spiritual act. 
It was a sign of freedom for them. It, was, it had a purpose to make life better for everyone. And in commenting about freedom, Tutu also noticed the difference that a preposition makes. He said, there is freedom from, and there is freedom for. Freedom from apartheid was difficult after 300 years, but he said that that wasn't as tough as the freedom for. What are we freed for? Christ has freed us from the law. What are we freed for? Many of you will remember reading stories or columns by Irma Bombeck. Once she received a letter from a single mother who had raised a son who was about to become a dad for the first time. And since the son had no recollection of his own father, her question to Irma Bombeck was, what do I tell him a father does? Now, Bombeck's father died when she was nine. So she, too, was raised by her mother. And so the question came to her, what do fathers do? She said, as far as I could observe, they brought around the car when it rained so everyone else could stay dry. They always took the family pictures, which is why they were never in them. They carved turkeys on Thanksgiving, kept the car gassed up, weren't afraid to go into the basement, mowed the lawn, and tightened the clothesline to keep it from sagging. And she said it wasn't until she and her husband had children that she was able to observe firsthand what a father could contribute to a child's life. What did he do to deserve the child's respect? In her case, she said he rarely fed them, did anything about their sagging diapers, wiped never wiped their noses, or rarely wiped their noses or fannies, rarely played ball, or or they played ball, or they bonded with them, rarely bonded with them under the hoods of their cars. So what did he do? And then she describes it. And as we think about fathers in her description, let's think about what, how we can translate that over into our roles as Christians as well. He threw them higher than his head until they were weak from laughter. Do not try this at home with each other. He cast the deciding vote on the puppy debate. He listened more than he talked. He let them make mistakes. He allowed them to fall from their first two-wheeler without having a heart attack. He read a newspaper while they were trying to parallel park a car for the first time in preparation for their driving test. Bombeck says, if I had to tell someone's son what a father really does that is important, it would be that he shows up for the job in good times and bad times. He's a man who is constantly being observed by his children. They learn from him how to handle adversity, anger, disappointment, and success. He won't laugh at their dreams no matter how impossible they might seem. He will dig out at 1 a.m. when one of his children runs out of gas. He will make unpopular decisions and stand by them. When he is wrong and makes a mistake, he will admit it. 
He sets the tone for how family members treat one another, for how family members treat members of the opposite sex and people who are different from one another. By example, he can instill a desire to give something back to the community when its needs are greater than theirs. But mostly, she says, a good father involves himself in his kids' lives. The more responsibility he has for a child, the harder it is to walk out of his life. A father has the potential to be a powerful force in the life of a child. Grab it, she says. Maybe you'll get a greeting card for your efforts. Maybe not. But it's steady work. I liked especially her phrase about being a powerful force in the life of a child. And and I see as we translate that over to our roles as Christians that we have the potential to be a powerful force in the life of each person we encounter. When we have made extinct the differences that really don't matter to God, we find ourselves wearing our baptismal uniform, wearing our clothes of white, clothed with Christ, and able to respond freely to his grace and compassion. We are freed for showing others mercy, compassion, and the love of Christ. The law had its purpose. Now we have ours to make better the lives of others as Christ did for us when he set us free. Let's pray together. I invite you to a moment of silence to reflect on who you are as a Christian, as a follower of Christ, and who you would like to become to offer that powerful force to the lives of others. We thank you, O God, for Jesus Christ, for the compassion and mercy that he offered to those he met. We pray for the ability to even be worthy of that compassion and love, even though we know that it's not required. Lord God, we thank you for your presence with us everywhere we go and pray and we thank you for freeing us to serve you in Jesus Christ. As we look ahead, O God, we pray for all those who gather for Vacation Bible School at this church and at many other churches. May the children that we meet and who are encountered to talk about Jesus and the Bible be drawn to your love and compassion and grace. We pray in the name of our Lord Christ. Amen.